What's up, everybody? Welcome to a very different and special episode of the Fancy Golf Pod. Normally, today, we're live at 4. Chad, Eric, and I are cracking beers, talking about which golfers are free squares and DraftKings for the week. But no PGA event this week. It's 11.30 in the morning, not 4 p.m., so no beers quite yet. Uh, unless yeah, I just came back from Vegas. We had our first beer at 9 a.m. the other day. So. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. I would I'd be doing the same thing in Vegas, but can't do that here. We got to do some work during the week, I guess. Um, <laughs> but anyways, well, unless you're going to be lighting money on uh, Charles Schwartzel at the Alfred Dunhill, or you're going to be lighting money on the match this weekend, no DFS to play, no bets to be made. Uh, if you're a regular watcher of this program, Obviously, you notice we're four hours earlier. Chad's not here. Eric's not here. Chad's solo dadding this week with baby Lucas while his mom took the other two kids to Disney. I'm not sure which sounds better or which sounds worse. Uh, and Eric has an actual day job, so he obviously can't be on the show today. So it's just me. I'm taking the show, uh, running it, uh, hopefully to give people a new and different perspective on stats and data. Uh, let's be honest here, uh, for those that know Chad and Eric, start talking about stats for more than like three or four minutes and they're completely lost and their brains are blown up. Uh, so I'm I'm lucky enough this week to be joined by Mr. Scott Fawcett, an actual expert in math and stats. This is something new for us, Scott. Uh, pretty much anything we say on this show, we have to put a disclaimer on it that we are not experts because if you pretend to be an expert you get an angry mob coming and yelling at you every week saying you're wrong and you're dumb so i'm excited to have you here you're an expert i'm not uh unless you live under a rock out there you know who scott is so i'm not going to go through a crazy intro scott you probably get these all the time <laughs> decade guy all these accomplishments that you have i don't need to do that everybody knows who you are only thing i will do is plug if you're an actual golfer want to shoot your best scores use scott's decade system proven to work over and over all kinds of pros and ams use it bryson obviously is one wills Torres is another uh, big names uh if you're serious about playing good golf this is a no-brainer doesn't matter if you're two handicap 20 handicap whatever anyways scott thank you for taking your time to chat with me uh especially after i i blew up your uh, blew up your email two days before Thanksgiving and then locked in a day, which I assume is a recovery day from being in Vegas. So appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Luckily, uh, I'm out there in Vegas for the college golf coach convention. So it's not like it's a, a free for all of craziness, but it's a steady drip of alcohol for, uh, for basically the entire day on Mondays. We just sit in our suite and have college coaches circle, uh, circle through and chat and everything. So it's a, uh, it's a pretty fun time though. Got it. And I and I saw on your Twitter, so you were you're doing the college coaches thing. Uh you were with the the stack system guys, is that right? I know you've been working on some speed. Is stack system the the system you go to for working on speed? Yeah, well Sasha McKenzie and Marty Jertson are the two guys who created stack and they were uh one of the early morning speakers yesterday in Vegas to the college coaches. So they'll have the college coach convention probably has like five or six hours of meetings and, and directional type stuff. And then, you know, two or three hours of speakers they bring in each year and, and Marty and Sasha, they just, 
you know, they're, they're two of the guys that I really respect in, in golf because, you know, I, I like to always joke whenever I say something, I'm not guessing. If I, if I say something's right, there's data that's backing it up. And those two guys are never guessing either. And they've done a great job with their stack system. And, and I definitely highly recommend it. I mean, again, like speed sticks, the stack, they're all kind of similar. You know, it's, it's like, how do you hit the ball harder? We'll pick up heavy stuff and set it down and then try to swing faster. Like it's not rocket science, but they've actually turned it into a bit of science, which is, it's, it's great. That's, I mean, it's funny because that's, as I'm trying to think of things to say for how to pick players, that's definitely one of them. If you're listening to interviews and stuff is to be paying attention to anybody that mentions looking for speed, because it's just not that hard to do even at the tour level. And so, you know, for, if you get a guy that says, you know, I'm thinking about looking at the stack system, I would look at about three months down the road, I would start really paying attention to that guy because that's about how quickly they can pick up 10 to 20 yards pretty easily. And that's just the freest money in golf. I was, I, that was something I was going to ask you about at, at some point. You're glad it came up already. Something that <laughs> myself and a, a regular guest that comes on here, his name is also Eric, uh, have talked about, on occasion is is speed and we like to say speed is potential so when we're looking at golfers that we want to pick personally i don't i don't even ever look at people that are like good putters i i like to start with people that hit the ball far and then kind of see what happens there so <laughs> when we say speed is potential we like to do exactly what you just said find those guys that are either long now or are working on being long and pay attention to kind of how the rest of their game is working. And you probably will be able to find somebody, especially if they're not like very well known, kind of find one of those diamond in the rough players that might be able to pop off a week or two, just because as we know, distance is, is such a big advantage. Yeah. I assume you would agree with that. I mean, it's one of the funniest things about like, there are some things with data that it's like, wow, that's interesting because I would have thought like a five foot, pretty big breaking putt would have been, you know, harder than a seven foot pretty straight putt. So give me a seven foot right lip putt or a five foot, you know, two cup breaker that the five foot, two foot break, two cup break, not two foot, two cup breaker is, is, is as easy or easier pretty much every single time than the seven footer. Like that's interesting to me. Like that's surprising. But the thought that we needed data to tell us hitting at the ball as far as possible is a good idea is is looking it's one of the, probably the funnier things looking back at all of this data revolution in golf that's comical to me it's it's kind of like did we actually need data to tell us that shooting a three was a better idea than an 18 foot jump shot like the, the expected value shouldn't be that challenging of math for people to have figured out prior to to actually having the data in golf i, I totally agree it's 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 pretty wild and just like the very basic data that you can get anywhere is it's so obvious and it's it's sad that it took so long to get it but then the more you dive into the dive into the weeds of all the data and kind of how it what makes up like what makes up a stroke gain it even gives you even more perspective on kind of how how we can look at how golfers play golf and how they can get better at golf or how we can maybe potentially predict how they'll do in the future which is mostly why I have you on the show, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, I can speak to, I mean, to that idea at all. Exactly. There's like DeChambeau. When I caddied for Zal Torres back in 2014, when he won the Texas AM US Junior, you know, the SMU coach came up to me and was talking about Bryce. And so DeChambeau is the second player that I kind of worked one-on-one -on -one with. And the first place that I saw him hit a ball outdoors was at Eugene Country Club in 2015. It was 2015. And... It was just it was hilarious because he had his fairway finder and then his big ball back then 
And his fairway finder, you know, it was like 285, 290, something like that. And Eugene's a, a tight tree line course. And we played like the first four holes and he had just been like bunting it down the fairway. And, and what's funny is he actually still wasn't hitting every fairway. So his fairway finder didn't actually find every fairway, but we get to five and I'm like, well, let me see the big ball, dude. Let me, I mean, just let's see it. <clears throat> and he teed it up like an inch higher and just instantly threw an extra 40 yards on it. And I was like, what are we doing here? You can't leave that in the tank. And I would love for that kid to see what he's doing now because Bryson literally said, you know, I just feel like I'm going to get hurt if I try to do that very often. So, you know, that's just something I bring up once or twice around. I'm like, you're going to finish second in the world long drive contest in a couple of years. Like it's mind boggling, but he's the perfect example of there's just so much distance to be found. And again, it takes work and effort, but it's, it's your job. I mean, at, at this point on tour, it's your job. And, and again, I saw Brian Gay swinging the, the, the stack speed sticks, the stack system sticks out at a club out at uh, the senior tour event here. And Brian's a guy that I, I, I don't know him, but I've, I've played competitive golf against him since college. And to watch a guy that basically made, you know, millions and millions of dollars putting it well, and to see him now at 50, hitting it further than he's ever hit it. And people will want to blame, you know, the clubs and the balls and all that. So it's like, or the fact he's working his ass off and he's lifting harder. And then he's actually trying to hit it further. Like, again, I know a lot of people historically have tried to hit it further and failed at it. But now that we've got a little bit better understanding of what it takes, it's not about like holding this lag. Like most people used to try to jam this lag in further. And it's not about that at all. That's the main mistake people historically make. Gotcha. So, uh, so you mentioned putting that, you know, Brian Gay has pretty, pretty much built his career on putting. Um, it's, it's a thing that goes back and forth in this, in this DFS betting world. And I was, I was hoping I'd get a chance to ask you about what you think about it. Cause I know you have some thoughts on, on what you should do as far as putting and, and how much it matters. So the big, de- one of the big debates, there's a few of them, but one of the big debates is whether putting even matters when you're trying to when you're trying to decide whether you should play a golfer in your draftings lineup or bet him. And what that means to most people is should we look at somebody's strokes gain putting in any event and say, this guy's a good putter. Maybe and maybe you can even look at it by grass type. You can get that, get those stats on some different websites. Should I look at strokes gain putting on this putting surface? Will that be helpful or Scott, do you think it's just random and we should just ignore putting altogether and focus on things more like uh, off the tee or or stroke scanned approach? Well, again, so like I said before we started rolling, you, you, one thing that's interesting with you know tour instructors, if you will, is we can't do anything with gambling. So just like in full disclosure, this is nothing I ever look at. But in this morning and trying to figure out what would I look at, yeah, I mean – Strokes gain putting is just as important as strokes gain driving because it's an average of what you're typically capable of. But if I were going to be looking into it, I would be looking at not only the actual just strokes gain number, but I'd be looking at the standard deviation of it as well. Um, I don't know which one would be better. You know, if maybe if you're worse, a higher standard deviation would be better because it shows we've got some times where we are highly positive and highly negative. Um, but overall, I think that the thing that gets lost in this idea is putting, it is skill-based, but any given week that you make a lot of putts, even if you're a plus 0.3 to 5 stroke game putter, the week that you gain 5, 6, 7 is just variance. I mean, again, the, so the better you are, if you're a plus 0.3 versus a minus 0.2, like I'd rather have the plus 0.3 guy on my team, but it would not by any stretch of the imagination be the reason I would take somebody. 
I would probably struggle with taking anybody that's very negative, like a minus point one five or point two or worse, just because again, like by definition, they're, they're, they're going to be two shots worse, you know, over four rounds on average. But again, if you had a guy like that with a high standard deviation, so maybe a high window of potential, it'd be, it'd be possible, but any given week, it's like an eight foot putt is 50, 50. It's not like you go make, miss, make, miss, make, miss, make, miss. You'll make three, four in a row, miss four, five in a row. If I were doing it though, I would be looking for the guys that are, that are, that are pretty good in like the mid range, 10 to 20 foot type putts. The guys that, you know, where the guys really separate themselves on tours from five to 12, five to 15 feet in that range. Um, the longer putts are just entirely like, I don't care if you're number one on, you know, from 25 feet on tour, the week that you make three of them instead of your normal point three or whatever it is, is just luck. But again, sure. the better you are, the less lucky you have to get. Sure. But tee shots again, like I would be starting with strokes game driving because those guys that drive it well i mean again if you just look at the top 10 in strokes game driving it is exactly who you would think it is it's you know the djs the the brooks the zalatoris the guys that are just there every single week as top 10 machines and it's because there's, there's a hogan quote that's where he says you know if you can't if you can't putt you can't score but if you can't drive you can't play and there is one thing that i think is interesting in strokes game driving is they're all good at it. Like you don't keep your card on the PGA tour if you drove it bad that year. Like it just doesn't happen. Sure. So it's kind of like, like the best analogy I've come up with is, is when people say strokes gain driving isn't one of the most separating things on tour. I'm like, well, that's because they all drive it well. So a mini tour guy might not work on his driver because he'd be thinking, well, that's not one of the bigger separators out there. I need to work on my approach play. It's like, well, that's because they all drive it well. So it'd be like me, I want to be an Olympic sprinter. And if we had strokes gained speed in Olympic sprinting, like, well, wow, they're all, they're all about the same. So never mind. I don't need to work on my speed because it's, that's not what separates us. It's getting out of the blocks. Correct. Or whatever. Like, no, well, you need to be really, really fast. And that's the thing I think that strokes gain driving gets kind of maybe looked at, looked over a little bit by some stats people sometimes because they just don't think it's as big of a separator. It's, it's mainly because they all drive it well. <laughs> sure. Now, who hits it further, it is, again, just free money. That's, man, if there's a way to go out to tour events and just see who's swinging speed sticks on the range on a weekly basis and then see who's the guys that are struggling, I mean, I just thought of that. That would be, if you wanted to probably find the freest money, I bet you that would be a, a good way to do it is go find the guys that have historically <laughs> struggled with driving and just who's swinging them on the range. And, and bet those guys pretty hard <laughs> you're, you're gonna have a lot of uh you're gonna have a lot of local guys that are that are gambling guys going out to the uh going out to the practice rounds every week now looking for all the all the speed I mean, sticks and all the stack systems that is that is literally what i would be looking for <laughs> I, i'm gonna i'm gonna be doing that at the 3m i live in minnesota so i'm gonna go out to the uh i'm gonna go out to the practice range and just start looking for all the speed sticks <laughs> <laughs> fantastic <laughs> as uh so so using strokes gained and if we're going to use driving or approach or putt or whatever people want to use um again there's a lot of websites out there where people can either pay subscriptions to some of them you can get it for free or you can sort all these strokes gain stats um and a lot of people like to sort them by recent rounds they've played so for example somebody wants to look at how tony finau has you know, his strokes gained data for the last 10 weeks or so. And mm -hmm. something that I've said a lot on the show 
um, and I don't think is thought about or talked about a lot is the shorter amount of time that we're using for these strokes gain stats, there can be sh single shots or one or two shots within that time frame that can kind of skew those. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that there's a time frame where we should be using or looking at strokes gain where the data is it's not it's not able to be skewed by one or two shots and it's it's mostly normalized where if i just look at tony finau's strokes gain approach last week he could have hit two from like 200 yards to a foot and his strokes gain approach is going to look really good i'm not sure that helps me for next week but if i look at uh, tony finau's strokes gain approach the last four months that might give me an idea of how good of an approach player he is do you think there's a certain amount of time that we should be looking back where you know the stats kind of normalize out and we're not looking at randomness i mean i would think that's probably in the eight tournament you know so if he made all eight cuts that'd be 32 rounds so realistically someone's probably going to play you know mid-20s rounds out of 32 in, in eight events if there's a way to kind of like weight those heavier and then maybe the next eight a little bit less i, I would definitely this is one question I get all the time is like, what if I'm playing really good? Can I get more aggressive or, or, or if I'm playing bad, should I get less aggressive than decade would say? And I'm like, you know, yes. And, but the problem is when you start looking at stats, like, like exactly what you're alluding to is I don't really care. I mean, this is coming from a guy who sells a stats portal for a living. I don't really care what you were doing six months ago. I, I really do. And again, you, but you're correct in that you need to not let uh, a, a little week of variance really impact, but also if you hit two to a foot, it's probably a decent sign that you've, you know, you're hitting Maybe those some out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're hitting them better than, than than normal. So I would definitely focus on the more recent events. Again, whenever I typically pick up a tour player, uh, I'll I'll glad you know, casually glance over their last you know their their strokes gained on the last twelve months or on the season, depending on how we're you know how far we're into the season. But then I specifically go in to, to track or two into shot link and actually look at where their golf shots finished for the last four ish events. So trying to get 12, you know, 12 to 15 rounds uh, that I can that get in and see strategically again, any given shot. If someone hits it, if it pins four yards from the left and if they hit it 20 feet right of the pin, I don't know where they're aiming that shot. But over the course of four rounds or four tournaments, rather, patterns start to emerge of are they playing too aggressive or too conservative? You know, it's funny because if there's if there's any one thing that I would also say, and this I don't know why this just popped in my head, but if if it's possible, I mean, it is definitely possible. It was probably take a bunch of work, depending on how much effort these guys are putting into matching their lineups. But if you were to get into, uh, you say you had somebody you thought was playing too aggressive. I get people that tell me Rory all the time is too aggressive. I don't really pay attention. I, I've never looked at his stats or images, so I don't know if that's correct or not. But let's pretend it was true. I would kind of toggle through even on pgatour.com where they've got the images of where the shots finish up and you can toggle through a tournament pretty quick and see how often is this guy getting it short-sided so you can kind of see are they playing pretty aggressive if they're getting it uh onto the short side of the flag missing the green too often and then that's the kind of player as odd as this sounds i would actually try to play them the harder the golf course is with penalties so like a, a pga national where they play the honda or the players these courses are really hard and these you know the tour players that my, my cam joke is they're not total idiots i mean these guys are idiots but they're not total idiots if you're sitting there and there's a lake on the left and the pin is four yards from the left like they play out to the right of it and then they really actually try to hit it there 
Whereas if it's a bunker or rough or whatever, they'll they'll play too aggressive. So if you if you notice somebody who's playing too aggressively when there's not penalty areas in play, then I would actually want to play them when there are because they they typically are forced to play, you know, more intelligently. You know, the other thing too, before I forget it, that I was thinking about one big problem with strokes gained is you just don't have all measured rounds. I mean, so here I'm looking at uh, you know, Abraham Anser, he played 63 rounds last year. Only 46 of them were in strokes gained, like were actually measured with shot length. Hadwin had 76 rounds for uh, 76 measured versus 92 total. I mean, that's a pretty consistent ratio. Alex Norn, 73 total, 48 measured. Zalatoris, I mean, this is the reason I lost my mind on the announcers and everyone back during the during Will's win in Memphis is they just are talking about how he's not a great putter. And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, the fact that he finished fifth in the first of all, he's dead on tour average last season, but they didn't have his uh, the, when he finished uh, fifth place at the match play. They don't have any of the, that data in there because they're incomplete rounds. When he lost at Torrey Pines in a playoff, the North course isn't in there. So who knows what he did there? When he finished third or fourth, I think it was at uh, PGA West. Again, alternate courses, no strokes gained. Masters third or whatever he finished this year, no strokes gained. Like there's just a bunch of really critical rounds from like if you actually, and this is where Data Golf does a good job of of still saying this is what their total strokes gained would have been. And I don't know what they've said Will's should or shouldn't be, but he's for sure positive putting. Yep. And it's like when you're missing critical rounds, now let's flip that and say, somebody played terrible on a, on a course that only had, you know, a few of the rounds measured. Maybe they're actually worse than their strokes gained shows them to be. So really paying attention to which tournaments were in the total strokes gained, especially when they're only maybe getting 66 to 75% of rounds in, you can get a, a big discrepancy because of that. For sure. Yeah. I, uh, it's, and that's something, something you mentioned there that was, that was interesting to me that, that I had, written down that I wanted to to check in with is how the how different courses play or how different players play courses based on how difficult the course is and it's something that a lot of people talk about when the majors come up or you know like uh PGA National comes up that type of stuff a lot of people like to look towards players like Will um or people that play or seem to play very conservatively um and in majors and courses like PGA National, you're not looking for guys that are firing at every flagstick and making birdies a million times. You're more looking for guys that are just not making bogeys. So is there something to to looking at guys like Will that I don't want to call it conservative because you don't want to call it conservative. You know that that's the system. <laughs> not unless you want me to jump off this call. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's not a conservative play. Correct. But it, people, people assume it's more conservative. It's It's... It's more strategic, basically, is what it is. So, should is is there something to looking at guys like like Zalatoris that kind of just play the birdies to the variants and take their pars as they come, and you know they're they're probably more likely to do better in majors and the harder courses just because they're better strategically than other players. Is there something to looking into that? Do you think? Technically, it wouldn't really matter based on it better on a harder course. They're just better players because they're playing the game correctly. I mean, that's really all that there is to it. It's it's kind of an end of story. But just to add into that, like the way the way decade technically works is if you've got a course with a ton of trouble around it or deep rough or whatever, 
the decade target would be forced more towards the middle of the green. But then if you've got a course that's super easy, you know, the, the surrounding hazards are not going to be as difficult. Well, then decade would have you getting more aggressive on those courses. So technically that would be an irrelevant point if they're one of my students. Now, sure. if they're not, it's certainly because then this is, again, there, there's, there's an inflection point between aiming at the flag and aiming at the dead center of the green that's optimal. Very rarely is aiming at the flag optimal and very, very, very rarely is aiming at the middle of the green optimal. Like it's the middle of the green is, is typically worse than aiming right at the flag. And again, now I'm, I'm talking dead center of the green here. And so you do, you just want to find players that are playing smart. Now, the problem with this is, and this is one thing that I used to get criticism, not criticism, just questioned years ago was what's, What's going to be the separating factor when once everybody on tour is doing this? Well, then whoever's the best is. But historically, a lot of guys played with terrible strategy, um, especially terrible mindset as a result of terrible strategy. Those guys just aren't going to be on tour anymore. I mean, you're just not going to keep your card playing dumb golf. I mean, I've worked with on any given week on tour. I typically have about 40 players in the field that I've worked with. Um, but at this point, 100 percent of the tour knows who I am and what I'm doing and whether or not they're doing, you know, decade, you know, without my knowing or whatever, they're all thinking different. I mean, again, just a hundred percent of them are finally understanding that this is important. And, and especially as, as the young kids in college, I mean, we've got 350 teams that have our app in college this year. It's just going to slowly change out over the next five to 10 years where a hundred percent of the tour Again, whether they're technically doing it or not, they're all going to be playing much smarter golf. I and mean, there's other data guys out there that are doing just as good of work, you know, but a lot of it's based off of what decade is, but where they're trying to actually quantify each player's shot pattern, which good luck with that. It's a, that's a fool's errand, but uh, <laughs> it's not, we're not that far away from, it's not that having proper strategy is going to be an edge anymore. It's you're going to have no chance if you don't. Sure. I mean, you don't see any, I mean, I shouldn't say this. I don't watch the NBA at all. I've, I've been blown away in the last couple of weeks. I, I literally don't watch much sports and I've been blown away in the last couple of weeks as I've been out on the road a little bit and been just, I've been six, I've been watching more TV and I'm like, holy shit, the scores in the NBA are so high now. I yep. caught this one a couple of weeks. It was like 143 to 128, like in early in the fourth quarter. And I was like, is it the, is this the all-star game? Like it's, it's insane. So I'm assuming we don't see any of the old style teams with just the giant center and just a slow, yep. it's just run up and down the court and launch it and get back on defense. Like I assume yep. that's pretty standard out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, I mean, it happens and it's happens and has happened in every sport where data kind of takes over and says, this is optimal for this sport. So playing basketball, if you have Steph Curry on your team, why are you throwing it in in the paint to a big guy when Steph Curry is just going to make threes all the time? There's just no point in doing that. And it's it's funny because the NBA, you see these high scores all the time, and everyone assumes, oh, there's no defense being played, which is somewhat true, somewhat not. But the the difference is the the stats have have showed people how to take advantage of the game, and that it kind of takes away a little bit of the defense in the NBA, but also it's like the math is just going to win. So you're just not going to slow the game down. Like, I mean, you, yeah. you can play offense however you want to, but if the other team is just running down there and, and exactly. running, I mean, it's just, you're not going to keep up. Exactly. I mean, no yep. chance. Yeah. So, so do you think, uh, 
if if we're looking at you know this this coming season, we've we've kind of had a few uh, a few tournaments with all the younger guys and the the Corn Ferry grads and stuff. Do you think we in the past years ago, Corn Ferry tour guys coming up, we just kind of mostly ignore them unless they were really really good on the Corn Ferry tour, or really really good coming out of college. It's kind of like show me something first before I kind of jump on the bandwagon. And I'll I'll stick with the with the older guys that have more experience and understand the tour better. Do you think now we we should be kind of transitioning that to where we should pay a lot more attention to these younger guys that are more strategically sound? They hit the ball a lot farther, all those kinds of things versus you know kind of the old guys that kind of just plotted around and don't have great strategy. You think we should be looking more at younger guys now than than we used to? Yeah, I mean, the veteran's edge is is going away quickly. I mean, again, this is where the veteran's edge, you know, just even 10 years ago was mind boggling because of just I've been playing this golf course for 15 years. I know it. You're a rookie. You're coming in. I, I remember whenever I was on the Hooters tour and we would get like one practice round because we're driving and, and it was just a beating. I mean, and I remember thinking, I can't wait till I get on tour and I get three practice rounds in to really know the course. It's like you still don't because you're not playing in the Wednesday Pro-Am. You're traveling on Monday also. You've got to get your your, your body maintenance up. Uh, but now with data, and I, I hate saying this, but like whenever I play golf tournaments now, I find the practice rounds just excruciating because I can prepare from the satellites and yardage books way better than actually playing the course. I mean, I need to play like three holes to see how firm the greens are and how fast the greens are. And aside from that, it's just it's it's just painful to play practice rounds to me. Again, I'm not doing it for a living. If I were doing it for a living, I would change my attitude. But this is the kids. I mean, again, going back to when Aaron Wise won in uh, the Byron Nelson, whatever year it was, 2017 or 18 or 16. I don't, I don't remember what it was. But whatever, yeah. He's a student that, uh, you know, Jeff Smith is, is one of the best instructors on the PGA Tour. And Jeff teaches all of his players decade. And we get all of them. The, the packets every single week and blah, blah, blah. And I just remember when we we're going into Trinity Forest first year, I just remember that was the first time I had told young rookies. I'm like, this is a big week for you because none of the, no one knows this course and you from being a decade student really know how to prepare better than these veterans do. The veterans are like, let's walk the course backwards and hit shots. Like, dude, look at the satellites, understand what's going on, understand widths and distributions and, uh, where you want, you know, shot patterns to finish, not a shot to finish. And, you know, sure enough, Aaron, you know, wise goes on and wins that week. And I'm like, that wasn't surprising. I literally sent an email to just a few of the rookies saying this is a big week. The next time that it came up was uh, Congaree a couple of years ago. I sent the same email to my younger players like this is a big week for you. And Garrett Kigo went out and won that week. It's just, man, when you get a, a new course, I would heavily lean towards the younger players that understand how to prepare different than the older players do, um, obviously within reason, but then I would not hold it as a negative against a younger player, just that they haven't seen the course anymore. I mean, again, sure. especially with the work that I do with the caddies and the players, like they're all on the same page now. I again, historically, the player would kind of be driving the strategic bus and they may or may not know what the hell they're doing. And now you get both the player and the caddy on the exact same page with how we're making decisions. I mean, I, again, there, there's part of me that, that you know, people give me a hard time saying that, you know, hasn't this taken some of the fun out of the game? And I'm like, I, I guess if you're one of the folklore golf course architecture <laughs> historian lovers, 
but we're talking about professional golf and the goal is to shoot the lowest score. So I think that hundred percent of those players like shooting lower scores, whether or not making decisions is, is easier. Like it's funny to me, like, so making decisions easier makes the game less fun. Okay. That's, that's one way to look at it. Seems, <laughs> seems backwards to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why I get in trouble on Twitter. Cause it sure as hell seems backwards to me. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, kind of, kind of doubling on that. Uh, one thing in the the DFS and the betting world that another thing that kind of goes back and forth between people is whether whether people's history on a course matters, whether course history matters. So you're saying if it's a brand new course, probably lean the young guys because everybody's kind of on the same playing field. If we're going on to a course where it's been played for twenty or thirty years or however many years, forever, call it Masters, for example. Is it is it a good idea to start at you know the all the history of the Masters and say this guy has finished here tenth place like four years in a row, somebody else has finished fiftieth. I'm just gonna ignore that fiftieth place person because I don't I don't think they have any clue how to play the course, especially younger guys, for example, that haven't either don't have the history or have only played it a couple times. Should we just if somebody has hasn't been able to figure out the course for a year or two, should we throw them out? Or with the with this kind of new way of thinking of being able to strategize around a course better as we're learning how as kids are learning how to do it, and and I think veterans are trying to learn how to do it too. Should we should we care about how people have played the course in the last five or six years, or should we assume that everybody's just kind of getting better? And most people are kind of getting better at how to strategize every course. I mean, I think that you t it's it's you know I don't know how many different uh, categories you've got to to make a decision on, but it's yeah it should be part of it and it should be weighted you know less than others. But if you've got a guy you know again Keith Mitchell won the Honda, I guarantee every time he shows up the Honda he's got a little pep in his step versus another week. Like there's no there's no doubt when you've done well in a place before it you a you're just gonna have a good feeling and b you're gonna you're, you you might have it to where just like the, the course fits your eye, the eye lines, the bunkers are in the right spot for your game. I mean, it's certainly horses for courses, that idea. But, you know, when you go Tiger one four times, it's or seven times or four times in a row, I guess, whatever it is at Torrey and Bay Hill, like, yeah, well, the dude's really good. I mean, like he, he just happens to win a lot. But there's clearly something about those courses he does like. So I would definitely factor it in. It would not be my biggest weight, but I certainly wouldn't discount it by any stretch of the imagination. Sure. Do you think do you think there's a way to to wait or to to figure out how somebody might mentally feel about a golf course? So we can look at course history. Obviously, we can look at if somebody's won there a couple of times or if they top five every once in a while. Like a lot of people like to say, "I'm going to play." I, I like keep using Tony Fino, one of my favorite golfers outside of Bryson. I'm going to keep using Tony's name. So a lot of people show up to a course and say, this course should really fit Tony Fino's eye. This should really be great for him mentally. Do you, is there a way to quantify that? Is there any way to know whether a course actually will fit somebody's golf game? Or are we just kind of guessing? A hundred percent. And again, this is where like, I don't know how much, how serious people take all this stuff. Like if I was betting bucks, I wouldn't take it too serious. If I was betting 10,000, I would really put some effort in, but there's a reason the masters has historically been won by lefties. And it's because most good players with speed fade, you know, fade the ball. 
So if you take a lefty who fades it, that's going to be really good on 2, 5, 10, 13. The only hole that it hurts you on at Augusta is 18. And so we've got literally four or five holes that it's not like, man, I'd like to turn it from right to left here. It's like it has to turn from right to left here. Now, so you get a guy like Zalatoris or Brooks or DJ that that only cut the driver. They're going to have to drop back on those holes. I mean, again, comically, like Will uh, on number two at Augusta this year, like he put it way down there left. I think he had a whiff or put it in the hazard or something in the in the final round. Um, it's because he's standing up there with driver and he's fading it and he just doesn't have a whole lot of room to play a fade yet keep it left of the bunker. Like it's, and that's why he should be hitting three wood off that tee or hopefully mini driver will, if you're listening, I still think you should need to get that mini driver in for April, but, um, it's, it's, it's guys like that when they have to drop back to a three wood, they're just giving up 30 to 50 yards. I mean, on 13 or 10, that's why Bryson was really trying so hard to get that 40 inch 48 inch driver in play because he is one of the few guys with speed that does play a draw. Um, and that's because his left hand grip is so weak that he can try to feel like he's duck hooking it as hard as he can and, and really still can't turn it over. But I would definitely it, dog legs aren't as important if we're dog legging around bunkers or water. So like number 18 at Memphis or number 18 at Sawgrass. Uh, those are dog leg lefts, but it's around a water hazard. So you can just fly it. You can still play your, your preferred shape. And, and the guys that drive it the best are by far and away the guys that hit one shape. So trying to figure out any courses that do have trees, does this match a player's shot pattern? And again, I would think that most of the good drivers, it's relatively obvious which way they prefer shaping it. For sure. And that definitely would be a course fit thing. It's this is where I can't where who it was Hudson Swafford or somebody, somebody like three, two, three years ago was playing in there. They had two starts uh, on a medical still with three tournaments to go. And there was like, it was like with two events left in the season. And he asked me, he's like, my agent really wants me to play these two events. Cause if I play well, I will, uh, I'll get in the FedEx Cup playoffs. And I'm like, yeah, and if you don't, you're going to be in Q school, like on the Corn Ferry Tour, playing out of the 126 to 150. And again, I, I need to go back and figure out who it was again. But whatever the course was that was going to be the first, like one of the first two or three events of the following season, I'm like, that course is going to fit your game way better than that the last event of the season was going to. I would wait. And I understand we're just giving up on the FedEx Cup playoffs here, but I'd wait. He won the tournament. I told him to play in. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that worked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than now, now instead of getting to play in the FedEx Cup playoffs last year, we get to play on tour for the next three years. That's a good thing. Right. So, and, and then building on top of that, an, another thing people love to do in in this industry is is do course comps. So course fit, course comp. So they'll what what most people do is they just go look at past leaderboards and say these two leaderboards kind of match up. These courses must be similar. I, th I think a better way to do that is to kind of do what, what you're saying is actually look at the golf course and see, is there a lot of dog legs left or can they cut them off first of all, but are there a lot of dog legs left, dog legs, right? Do the holes match each other? And then is that the course comp versus should we just, should we be looking at leaderboards and comparing them and saying these courses are similar because the leaderboards are similar or should we, be doing that extra digging kind of kind of like you were talking about and saying 
the courses are actually like each other, not just the leaderboards are like each other. If you could do a combination of the two, again, this is where like, I don't even know, I wouldn't even know how you would pull that off. Again, like you literally have to know every single course on tour and know it really well, which I kind of do because of like studying them every single week. But even I'm like, I can't, I can't process that question enough other than say like Innisbrook, Sawgrass and the Honda are all pretty similar. They're similar grasses. They're all really difficult. They've all got, you know, shots through, I guess the Honda doesn't necessarily have that many shots through trees. But they've all they're all very penal i mean you would I'm, I'm sure there's a way that you could you wouldn't want to just do average score or score relative to par because that can be so subjective to the the conditions any given week but if you could try to figure out a way to say this course relatively has similar scoring averages the the grasses are the same i mean there's no reason you couldn't do something like that for sure and again this is where it's just so interesting because like a lot of what you're saying i'm like yeah you could do that it'd be a, a lot of work and it would be you'd have to really be good at data analysis to pull that off but you could definitely do it i mean it's uh it's it's very interesting because you, you, you said this a couple times now that whatever <laughs> whatever we're talking about that you could do would take a lot of work there are uh, there are a lot of people that have come into the the dfs and mm -hmm. the, the DraftKings and the betting space that are like they studied uh, data yeah. or or their accountants like me there's tons of accountants that are that are experts in uh, all this uh, data stuff for golf so it's funny that you say it takes a lot of work there are i think there are people that will take what we're saying here and say it is a lot of work but i know how to do it and i think i'm gonna try and do it i'm listening to this and i'm already kind of spinning my wheels on how i'm gonna go to my excel spreadsheet after we get off this call and try and work on some of that stuff so there, there definitely are people that want to do this. So the, the stuff that you're saying, I think is, is very valuable. I, I, well, I, then, I I mean, along those lines, one of the main things I'd be looking for then just going back to putting, you know, going into the British last year, obviously will has lost the PGA in a playoff. He's third in the masters. He just is a top 10 machine and going into the British, everyone's like, I'm all in on Zalatoris and I'm just sitting here in my office laughing going, I'm not, and he's my student. And the reason is, Will's putting and it's not Will's putting like, hey, well, what, what do you mean? He finishes he's second and third or whatever at the Masters in two tries. What do you mean it's putting? The most important thing at the Masters is your speed control. Nobody's making anything at the Masters. There are these crazy big slopes, but who's tapping in the most? And the person who's tapping in the most is Will Zalatoris. That guy has the second best speed control based on approach putt performance, which isn't a perfect metric of speed, but it's the only speed control stat they publish on PGATour.com which is the average length of your second putt. Now, if you could figure out a way to control it to the average length of your second putt from outside 15 feet, that would be an interesting number to look at for the masters. But for the British where, you know what? It might be blowing a hundred. We really can't have the greens rolling 14 with crazy slopes. We'll never finish the golf tournament. Oh no, it's dead calm. Well, then this just isn't the week. But so the problem is, is Will's Will's advantage is his speed control, not his line control. And again, we're splitting hairs here because obviously sure. the guy, you know, again, they like to give him a hard time being bad on short putts. Well, he's 88, 170th from four feet, which sounds terrible as an absolute number, but he's 89% as opposed to 92% for tour average. It's like he's 3% worse. 
given somebody, you know, who would you want to have put, you know, a, a four footer to save your life? Well, I'd rather have somebody 3% better, but if it were really be like, that's fine too. Like it's, it's not that big of a difference. The key is, is a guy like Will, when he misses the short putt, he just moves on and he doesn't freak out about it. And that's sure. what I, you know, again, I'd be looking for, but I would definitely be taking courses that historically have flatter greens. Um, you Now you want to be getting going with the guys. And again, I'm literally making this up. I'm just logically saying this is where I would be looking. If we've got a course with flatter greens, I'd be wanting to get the guys that are the best in make rates from three to six feet because those are the guys that control their line the best. I mean, that's so now if we could actually find a guy that's good from three to six feet and then is actually also good in approach putt performance, which I guess would basically be the definition of going straight down the top 10 in strokes game putting. <laughs> That would be, I would tend to, I think, I think that would be an interesting thing to look at. I shouldn't say that would be where I would tend to look. I think that would be an interesting thing to look at. Gotcha. Gotcha. We're, uh, we're, we're running up right on the time I told you we were going to take. We, we, for, for those listening before we get on here, Scott asked me how long this is going to take. I was like, I don't know. We try and go like 30, 45 minutes. And then, you know, I, one of us will probably get bored. And Scott's like, I don't know if I can go 10 minutes of stuff. And now we're we're running up on forty five minutes, so I think we could probably wrap this up. We got a lot of a lot of good information here, and and I, I think this is going to be really helpful to to wrap it up and kind of encompass everything we kind of talked about so far. Just a just a summary. So I think we've kind of figured out that there's a whole bunch of shit that we can come up with that can kind of help us decide which golfers to bet on, which golfers to play on our DraftKings lineups, blah, blah, blah. Do you, is there is there one thing out of all the things we talked about, one or two things, and again, understanding that you, ha- you have no, you can't do any betting, you can't play any DraftKings, it's against your code of ethics, you can't, it's illegal for you to do this. So you are not doing this, but if you were to be, one of us that is grinding every week trying to figure out which golfer is going to be the best for this coming week is there is there one or two directions as far as a stat or a course comp or something that you would pick as like the most important things to look at before you look at anything else so would you say strokes gained approach is the first or something like that since i don't even watch this again what do most people that do you bet heads up player versus player do you bet teams of players versus players? Like, what's the main thing people are doing? So, so on most people that listen to this show are are making lineups on DraftKings. So, how that works is you have all the big pool of players um, on the slate. DraftKings prices them uh, basically based on how good DraftKings thinks they are, how good they will be, how good they have been. So, they all have dollar range, dollar amounts to them. And then you have a salary range to fill that in. So you get $50,000, and then you have to pick six golfers that fill that 60000 So that's how it works. And then they've all got their own price. So Tiger would be 50 then you can only take five guys for 10 Exactly, yeah. Usually usually the top price guy is somewhere around like 11000 and the lower price guys are usually like 6000 The lower price guys, like nobody ever plays because they're just really bad. And, and then the top, you, you can't play. Right. What's that? You can only take six. It's not like you can take 10 lower price guys. Exactly. Exactly. And you don't have to use the whole salary, but if you don't, then you're just kind of using worse golfers in theory. So, yeah. but you also can't use four of the top price guys and just leave two blank. You have to fill in all six. So it's a, it's a matching game to try and fill the salary with, 
with all the golfers. And do their prices change much from week to week? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, your your Rory's, your Scotty's, your Rom's, they're all always at the top because they're always very good. But then you kind of get in that middle range where I call it the middle range that we would say is kind of like mid $7,000, like low $8,000. People people one week can be like 7000 and then the week after they can be like 9000 It kind of depends on field strength. I would assume then that DraftKings is basically doing it off of recent, like they've got their own algorithm of recent performance. For sure. Yep. This course fits and then it just spits it out. They don't, I mean, they're just lather, rinse, repeating every week. Exactly. If I were trying to beat that system, I would definitely focus in on the, the previous four or five events. Um, assuming that it's again, I, but I would make sure I'm in there and seeing why is Zalatoris $500 less this week? Did he not have some recent rounds in shot length that actually maybe he's been doing better than it would seem? That's, I mean, again, like that's the little hidden stones that I would be trying to turn over is does this course fit Brooks's, you know, fading tee shot better? Is it a lefty fading? Is it a righty like Bryson drawing? Like I would definitely be focusing in how are these people going to do off the tee first? Because those guys are just up there every single week. And again, but I'm assuming that the the strokes gain driving numbers are almost perfectly correlated ish to uh, the overall money and FedEx points list. It's probably the, the most. Well, I mean, th- this is where it's hard because like people say strokes gain approach is well, I get it, but it's also you have more of those. You only have 14 T shots. Like, and when it's sure. a category that sums, it's, it's why I don't even look at strokes gain around the green unless you break that down into per attempt. It's just the most relevant information possible. I've uh, I've said that uh, multiple occasions and sidetracking kind of a little bit, but uh, people love to use strokes gained around the green on the hard courses and the majors. And that's because people think that they're going to be missing the green. So they need, they're going to be chipping more. Do they, break it down and do, they, do they at least back it into per attempt? I don't understand what no. they do per attempt. Like the, the, the fact they don't do per attempt is, is just literally mind boggling to me. Yeah. Um, Cause the year Brendan Todd led, I should say, I'm pretty sure it's Brendan Todd led strokes gained around the green gaining like a half or 0.6 or something like that he was also dead last in greens and regulation i'm like so he was a decent chipper then he had the most attempts it's the last guy i would take in a major right exactly (laughs) exactly. last dude i would be taking not exactly i've I've worked with brendan a little bit so not you specifically because now you're playing much better than you were that year but (laughs) yeah (laughs) i would not be going off a stroke game a short game for damn sure. You know, it's actually interesting though, just to, and that made me think about something though. One thing you, you could, again, if there's a way to break it down into per attempt, I mean, that's what I do from shot link. I don't ever look at just the general number. I'll, I'll break it down that way to say, hey, we need to work on our chipping or not. But if you were to take a course and look at the par fives or the drivable par fours, um, those are the ones where people can really get some value. Um, and what you might want to honestly do is again, just, just spitballing. This is actually kind of fun. It, like number 10 at Riviera. It's it's the most obvious. Like I definitely have shifted the game on that one. You you should go for number 10 at Riviera every single time. And then you reassess if you should continue being air quotes aggressive based on where the tee shot ends up. But I would maybe try to find a guy at Riviera that laid up last year all three days because surely that guy's going to pull his head out of his ass eventually and then hit driver. So that's a guy that's got some potential value that, that he was just leaking away from poor strategy. So if you did go, maybe if you, again, this is now we're talking, going for, into some work, but if you went in on the par fives and found the ones that are 
super long and, and really only the the longest guys are going to be getting it up and around the green, then you might want to bring in a strokes gain around the green per attempt to say this guy's got maybe a little bit better chance of making a few extra birdies this week because he's longer, he gets it up around the green. But again, like almost by definition, now we're talking about the best players in the world. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, for a while there, you almost had to use that as as Bryson's uh, strokes gained approach because he was hitting the ball so close to the green that he he didn't even have approach numbers for a lot of holes because he was hitting it so close. It was drive to around the green. It's pretty funny. Yeah, truly, truly insane. I mean, again, I, that guy, the game will never be the same. I mean, I saw somebody post something earlier of a college kid at 195 mile an hour ball speed. Now, I will say I do think that about 195 mile an hour ball speed is about the peak we're going to see that is usable because at some point the shot pattern just becomes too big. I mean, in, sure. at 200 mile an hour ball speed, it's just it's a 90 yards wide. You just really don't have many times you get to use your driver and around if, if that's how fast you're hitting it. If I were like a college kid playing, I would be trying to get to the 190s and then just maintain that and just then keep refining the swing as opposed to continuing to go faster. Because at some point it, it is just somewhat unusable. That's that's interesting because we're I mean, yeah, we're, we're seeing all these guys that are trying to smash the ball as as hard mm -hmm. as possible and then. You, you hear all the time about, oh, this guy chased speed and then he fell off. Like they said that about Rory for a while, that he chased speed and then he fell off. Right after Bryson won the U.S. Open, I, I, I posted this on Twitter. I was like, the next few years are going to be glorious on the PGA Tour because 100% of the guys are going to chase speed and 90% of them are going to do it wrong. Um, <laughs> I did not think Rory was going to be the first one to do it wrong. And, and again, but exactly what he did is exactly what I meant by saying do it wrong. They're just going to start trying to swing harder. Yeah. Bryson did like six to nine months worth of prep work right. on joints, body structure, getting his body ready to handle the load he was about to put on it. Now, Rory was obviously super fit to begin with, but I also want to tell Rory, like, you know what, dude, you're 5'10". You're already super fit. Like, you're not getting to 200. And then most importantly, you don't need to get to 200. But where he's at in the mid 80s. It's probably about all he's got. I mean, again, he's I think he's posting the at 188s lately or something like that. Like that's so fast, it's ridiculous. But then you just watch like Cameron Young and these guys at the hero, and they're all in the low 180s. I mean, it's I, I do think that the entire tour is going to be drifting into the 180s. So, like right now, and I'm making this number up, if there's a, a 20 mile an hour range of ball speeds on tour, I think that that's going to obviously shift faster, but I think that that is also going to narrow. Driving is going to become much more of a commodity because you're just not going to be on tour if you can't drive it like that. Sure. I mean, here I'm, I'm a 49-year-old amateur. I've still got ball speed around 180. And I played in Corn Ferry Q School a couple weeks ago. And just by being able to hit the same shape over and over and over again and hit it fast, like I'm able to be competitive even with 25-year-olds. But that won't be very long until my 180 is way slower than – I shouldn't say way slower than tour average, but I will be, I would be on the lower rung as opposed to on the higher rung because everybody's going to get to 180. Like I really believe that anybody that has the the physical ability just to even play on tour, they can all get to 180. I mean, Matthew Fitzpatrick, that was the main thing Sasha McKenzie and Marty Jertson were talking about in Vegas yesterday is just watching this guy's progression from the high one sixties to, you know, posting one, the par five that he drove at, uh, I think it was number five at the U S open last year in the final round mm -hmm. Then came off with 181 mile an hour ball speed on just a tight draw right onto the green. And I'm like, 
if Fitzpatrick can do it, anybody can do it. I mean, again, right. like it's not like he's this alpha male. And again, I've worked with Matt for a few years too. So I, I'm not giving you a hard time either, Matt, but like he's not Brooks. <laughs> and so, but if, if Fitzpatrick at 150 pounds can get it to 180, like literally anybody can. Right. So, so going forward, then if everybody's going to be hitting at the same distance off the tee, and in theory, everybody's going to have a good enough swing to not be hitting it all over the planet and hitting it in the water. As we're moving forward, should, should we be thinking more about success for golfers? Right. I mean, we talked a bunch today already about if we're going to look for potential successful golfers, probably start off the tee. That's probably a good spot, spot to start. As things start compacting into everybody being basically the same, as it kind of sounds like that's where it's going, are we going to be shifting into now we need to find out everybody's hitting at the same distance with the same ball speed. Now we're going to have to start finding out who who's the best ball strikers with their irons because at some point the picking the driver just isn't going to matter, right, if they're all the same. So now we need to start figuring out who's good iron players and who can roll the ball in. I mean, that's it. Exactly. And then, but more than that, then who's mentally the strongest? I mean, again, that's, that's the unknown, um, you know, the, the proudest moment that I've had in this whole thing with Zalatoris over the last eight years is just at the masters on Sunday, when the announcers were just freaking out about how composed and calm he looked and that he just looked like he was, you know, like a 10 year veteran in the moment. I'm like, that's because that's what we've worked on for, for eight years with, through meditation and just, acceptance of outcome and, and moving on. And again, like a lot of people say, like, you know, I let myself get mad for 10 seconds and then I move on. I'm like, OK, that's fine if you actually do it. But not many people actually do it, whereas Zalatoris does. Like he's just the most resilient kid I've ever met. It's just incredible what he's able to do. But you're going to start seeing more guys coming through with, you know, I've got a I've got a browser tab open right now that some guy just sent me with a, you know, Kobe talking about the most important thing he does is a 10 to 15 minute meditation to start every day. Cause it just centers him. It gets him ready. Like the guys that are putting that, that's who's going to be the dominant performers. And again, that's, that is what made tiger who he is. I mean, tiger, yes, he is the complete player, obviously, but also he just did not screw off shots mentally. So finding any guys that talk about meditation routines or view that there's a certain sports psychologist you like, you can find out who he's working with those are the guys that uh, that are just going to be out there. And again, this is where not everybody's going to do that work. I mean, I had a, a tour player earlier just, you know, at the end of last season say, all right, I, that was an incredible year, best year ever. What do I got to do to get even better? And I'm like, well, you're not going to like this, but it's a meditation routine. Like this is what, and I explained to him the whole point. And I knew he wasn't going to do it. And I'm like, <laughs> well, if you're not going to do it, just tell me and we'll find out something else. Like, but this is what you should do. And, and, you know, I don't know, I'll do it. And I'm like, no, you're not. And sure enough, we texted him two weeks later. How's it going? I haven't started. I'm like, yeah, I knew you weren't going to. I mean, again, it's easy to say I want it, but unless you get in there and do the minutia, like I, you know, not that he said, I want to be Will Zalatoris, but that's essentially what he's saying. I'm like, well then do what he did. So you find the guys that are really open-minded about, again, I, like I used to feel really uh, self-conscious talking about it, you know, meditation very openly because it seems so crazy, but that is what the best, the Kobe's, the Michael's, the LeBron's, the Zalatoris, the Tigers, that's what they do. And that is their superpower, period. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The, I mean, you could, 
it's it's funny the the announcers you can and not that the announcers know everything but they they tend to talk about things like that all the time they're like oh this guy can't close he's not mentally tough enough they said that about again going back to tony fino again said that about him a lot he gets into the top five and he or he's leading a tournament he can't close he can't mentally handle it so Mm -hmm. I, i think that's interesting you say that it's it's something that we do we do consider when we're when we're betting people I can't bet this guy because he can't win. He's not mentally strong enough to do that. And I think that's a hard, I mean, again, I agree with your statement. I think it's a hard one to accurately make though, because we win so little in golf, just a little bit of variance. I mean, again, there's just times, well, like Jordan Spieth. I mean, again, it's not like I don't like Jordan. He's a great guy, but his first win was just luck. One hopping in the hole at John Deere, like, give me a break. But who knows what that teed up for him from that point moving forward. And then, there's just so many times where like the, again, I hate saying it, but the actual tournament that you win was just luck. Again, Will won in Memphis, but he had a lot of stuff. Like, I don't know, a ball staying up and then a guy hitting in the water on top of him. Like, you've got to be kidding me that he won that golf tournament. It wasn't because of anything other than luck. Again, the better you are, the more you put yourself in that position, you're going to win some percentage, but still any given week, something happened. Back, I mean, again, like with Will, when he missed the putt on the 72nd hole at Torrey Pines to get in, you know, to, to, to force a playoff or win, I guess it was to win and then to, to end the playoff. Everyone's like, he had to hit that putt harder. It would have gone in. He kind of choked because he didn't hit it hard enough. I'm like, well, first of all, it got to the hole and it didn't go more than two feet by. So actually it fits my definition of a, of a good speed putt. Yes, if he had hit that putt a little harder, I do agree it would have gone in because it would have carried a little bit more speed and it wouldn't have died off to the right at the end. But if you want him to hit that putt harder, he also has to hit the putt harder in the playoff in Memphis that he won on. And if he hits that putt harder, it doesn't go in because it barely fell in the right lip and it for sure would have lipped out. Both of those putts were like nine and a half feet. So they're less than a 50% putt. He's made one of the two. He's actually ahead of expectation. And so it's like, you just can't have it both ways. You just have to see the guy that can run the script over and over and over again and not not get in Memphis and all of a sudden be like, God, I almost left that one short in San Diego. I better hammer this one. Don't leave it short. Then it doesn't go in at all. Just keep doing the same thing and just sit back and see what happens. Sure. And that's, that's something that I've, that we say on the show all the time is the randomness of golf. It's so we can do it. We can use all the stats. We want all these things that we've talked about to for the last (laughs) hour. So we can use that all we want, but there are just things that are going to happen throughout the course of a tournament where we're not going to be able to predict it. We shouldn't even try to predict it. It's we can do our best to take a guess at what's going to happen. And then we got, you got to sit back and say, there's just random shit that's going to happen. Balls are going to weirdly roll into the water. Somebody's not going to hit a, hit a putt. That's going to break correctly. All weird shit's going to happen all the time. So we talked for an hour about all these stats, but all these stats and things we can use, but is, do you think people might spend too much time trying to analyze and think through all these stats versus just realizing that golf is fucking hard. Every, everybody messes everything up. Weird things happen. They play on all different types of courses. Balls can roll in the divots. All different things can happen. Do do people waste too much time diving into stats for a sport that's a lot that's very random? Do you think? 
I don't know how much time they spend on it, but I would say I would guess that answer is yes. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, technically, what I would think you should be doing is some sort of a combination of measured rounds versus total rounds, dollars and FedEx points divided by total rounds, and then just have the function be more of what's the value I'm getting. Like, so again, I'm obviously just ripping here. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But yep. as I say that, I'm like, if I did like FedEx cup points, because dollars even gets jaded based on, did you win uh, one event for 2 million or one event for 800,000? Like, right. so doing it divided by FedEx cup points or even like a combination of the two and then weighting them and then really just straight, I don't want to say game theory, but just like, what's the value I'm getting out of each person for 11,000? What's my expected value at 11,000 for him versus 8,000 for him? And then just straight going down. And then if you had, if you, if you, if you had just the top, if you got six, like take the top four, just purely based on math. And then maybe your last two picks are based off of a course fit, historical performance there. I'm hot coming in the last two or three weeks. I mean, it's funny. You can see it a lot of times whenever you're following along and guys like, missed a few cuts and it's like a 40th and then a 10th and then a 27th and then a 15th. You're like, this guy's kind of like trending, kinda trending in the right direction. And they'll just be, you know, a win or a top five. You see that I assume a lot. I mean, I know I anecdotally see it a lot mm -hmm. when I'm watching my players, but I would assume that you you can see that on average more, you know, more than yep. other things. Yep. You, you definitely do. And that's, it, it is what, what a lot of people try and look for is is those type of trends and things like that. So I'd, it, it'd be like a stock trading, like where you're watching like a trailing 200 or 100 day moving average. You, you could have like a few different moving averages of finishes last week, last four weeks, last eight weeks combined with FedEx cups per win uh, or excuse me, per round, total round, not just measured round. And then uh, factor that in with the weekly price. I bet that would be a pretty interesting algorithm to write. Interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna be working on that in my Excel spreadsheet here when we when we get off. See if I can find the answer. <laughs> Let me know if it's terrible. You're like, I'm gonna play, <laughs> play my field based off this exactly. That it's a, I'm, I'm gonna play the first. Uh, I'm gonna play the first three tournaments just on that, and I'll I'll let you know if I made any money doing it. But you just said like an infinite amount of matchups, right? Like, how, and then you just decide how much you want to bet, or is it like a hundred dollar entry? Like, I literally don't know how it works. Yeah, so so there's they they just create contests. So they have a, a lot of them. They call guaranteed prize pools. So they'll have five hundred thousand dollars guaranteed into this this one contest, and first place takes home ten thousand. So you're playing against in one contest. You can put five bucks in and play against 20,000 other people. And it's just your six versus 20,000 other people's six. There's other contests that are smaller where you can play against like two or 300 people. And then the, obviously the prize structure is a little different. And then there's other games where you can just play, basically play one one-on-one -on -one versus somebody else. So there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but basically they have to put together a, what's that? And then DraftKings just takes a little juice. Yeah. Yep. So they'll, they, they take some money off the top of everybody's entries. People, that's a, that's a whole different conversation there, but how much is that? But, five or 10%? I, I don't know what the exact percentage, I don't play enough for it to matter for me, but yeah. uh, there, there are some big fish in the water that, that pay attention to that number. And 
depending on the contest, I believe they'll take more or less depending on what it is. So it's, it's all, it's all kind of interesting and different, but yeah, I don't, again, I, on this show, we aren't the dudes that are putting a hundred thousand dollars into the site every week and, and trying to win a million dollars where I play for like 50 bucks a week. Chad, the host plays for a little bit more. Eric, the other host plays for a little less. We're, we're here for fun because we understand mostly what we, I kind of said just a few minutes ago that you can put all the time you want into trying to find all the stats that are going to run you into the golfers. But at the end of the day, it's just kind of random what happens in the end. So there's, for the most part, there's no point for me mm-hmm. or anybody else to put so much money into it when a lot of the outcome is just random. So we don't yeah. that much money. So I don't pay attention to it that. It makes it a little more interesting to watch. Again, I don't do any sports betting or anything. I actually did almost bet on the A&M LSU game last week just because I was going to be forced to watch it. Even though I went to A&M, I still don't watch it. My, my wife and her daughter <laughs> big Aggies. And I started to put a pretty big bet. Oh, buddy, some money. And I started just like, let me just bet it all on LSU to cover 10 and a half. And uh, just that way, if I could wipe my debt off, because I felt like that was the easiest bet in the history of bets, AM so bad. <laughs> and, and I literally just forgot. And I just happened to turn the TV on right when they kicked off. I was like, shit. And then I was like, or they lost the game outright. <laughs> or or AM won the game outright. I'm like, and that's why I don't bet. I almost doubled my debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's how it goes. I, I was going to ask you before we got on if you had done any betting, and then you went through the whole can't can't bet on golf can't do anything like golf. so i figured you weren't making any bets so i just didn't ask i don't i mean i literally don't watch sports or bet but since i had to watch this game or i knew i was gonna have to watch this game i was like i might as well make it more interesting then it was just <laughs> watching AM. well watching AM win and lose the bet would have been okay but if you hit that sweet spot between losing and ten and a half where you you don't get the win and you lost the bet it's like a oh, perfect right right yeah i like it all right scott let's uh we're, we've gone so long. Let's let's wrap this up. Perfect. I uh, I appreciate you taking your time out of the middle of the day on a random Wednesday. Kids are at school. We kind of made this work last minute. I emailed you two days before Thanksgiving like an asshole. So I appreciate you coming to chat. Uh, I feel like you provided a ton of good information. I hope that we had a, a bunch of live viewers popping in and out. Hopefully they got a lot of good information out of here. Replay will be up on YouTube with all the video and everything, all the audio will be on all your normal podcast networks in like the next hour or so. Um, yeah. Other than that, again, again, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Um, yeah. I'm, I mean, obviously I hope, hope there was a little bit of logic as to how I would go about it. And that, that's the logic I use to some extent and what I'm looking for with a new player on where I think we should start and where I think his easiest gains are going to be. But I also think that that's the logic that should be applied probably to, to how to set up some sort sure. of betting algorithm. Sure. Yeah. I appreciate it. Okay. okay. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to play this music to get us out of here to avoid that, that awkward talk to you later thing. This is, it's really <laughs> easy to do. So I'm going to play this thing. I'm going to end the broadcast. Scott, thank you very much. Replays will be up and uh, hopefully talk to y'all soon. <laughs>